Eric and I went to, uh, uh, we did our master's together in Chicago a couple years ago, and now he's in Berkeley doing his dissertation on uh, medical anthropology. So, And he's oh. an avid uh, podcast listener. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So he's the kind of guy who's going to call, wait for it, the TSP Improv Hotline. <gasps> Whoa. Say, say more. We have a phone number. <laughs> you can call it and you can leave messages for us that we can play on the podcast. So is that oh. phone number on the chat? Is that really is that actually the phone number? Yes, it's six one two. It's AGIL. Six one two four two four AGIL. That is so awesome. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So if you call that, you're um given a very pleasant welcome message and then you're asked to leave a message so if you have some you know commentary that you would either like either for us you know just sort of hey you're doing a great job kind of thing for example or that if would you be have a, a brilliant thought that you want on the podcast um we may or may not air it in its entirety or in part or edit it to make it sound like you're saying something different there's no guarantees, but that's the number six one two four two four four two four A G I L, which people know what A G I L is, right? Uh, I don't, unless it's supposed to be short for agile. Clearly, you don't listen to your TPP. Oh, it, oh, we put the A G I L in agile, okay? Okay, nice. Um, it's it's uh the this this you know the classic um sociological framework presented by Talcott Parsons. Uh, the the AGIL paradigm. Yeah, come yes. on, man. <laughs> it stands for adaptation, goal attainment, integration, and latency. Naturally. Oh wow! I've been doing things all wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's an inside baseball right there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, i i tried to I tried to get longer words that would fit into the phone number, but when AGIL works. Uh, AGIL rocks hard, man. That's a good way to go. <laughs> So I'm teaching social theory this semester, and I was telling John, I don't know if this is just what it means to be a teacher, but I, like, I'm finding myself actually enjoying theory now at a level that I didn't enjoy it before. And uh, I remember like when I, I taught theory two years ago for the first time when I was thinking about who to include, I remember like, you know, what, I want, what do I want to include for Max Weber, for instance? And I never really enjoyed reading Max Weber, uh, but having to teach it by virtue of teaching it, it seems really cool, and I don't know if like this new affinity for Max Weber and you know all these kind of classical theorists is just you know because I'd like to hear myself talk and and I'm kind of taking ownership of the material, or if it's really like I'm just finding it I'm finally getting it at a level I didn't get before, and I don't know if you know if you guys have taught something and suddenly realize that you like what you're teaching or if it's just kind of a fleeting thing or so that's. I'd be kind of curious about that and be interested to know what other people think. So why did you not like social theory as a student? Well, I just remember like reading Max Weber's Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism for the first time and just really like agonizing over it. And I, I know Max Weber was like, you know, uh, had horrible depression issues and was suicidal. And I remember thinking like, well, I, I kind of can see why he would be like writing this <laughs> stuff. I mean <laughs> – I mean, if you read like his stuff on bureaucracies, it sounds like he's writing like a owner's manual for how to run a bureaucracy. It's just like very dry stuff. Um, 
but teaching it, you're like, wow, this guy's kind of brilliant. He really understood how there's this new kind of dominate, you know, type of power and domination dynamic going on in modern society, and it still rings true today. It's kind of a very useful way of thinking about modern institutions. But when I first read it, I remember just rolling my eyes. And like, it, it seems like every theorist that we're covering, I'm like getting really excited about it and trying to like tell my students how, how awesome this stuff is. Even though I remember like reading it only a few years ago and kind of, you know, rolling my eyes and knowing that this is just what I have to get through to be a graduate student. Though actually, I got to say, I had the same experience though as a grad student taking theory. I was always like really, I mean, even though I have my own school that I like, the most and always have like I found myself being really excited about whatever we were talking about and like oh I can see all these applications and then of course I mean I've never returned to the vast majority of it but even as a student I felt like that I think too at least in my experience it's a different it's a different kind of relationship to the material when you're responsible for teaching it yeah and so you you have to relate to it differently and I think in some ways that requires you to read it more carefully than you otherwise would when you're reading it just because you have to check it off your list and you know prepare for your seminar for the week or whatever kind of cursory reading you do when you have to sit down and take responsibility for presenting it you actually have to give it the close reading that you maybe always should have in the first place and I know that for myself I, I've had that experience too, where I think, man, this is really amazing. And the first time I did it, or the first time I read it, and I, for me, Protestant ethics is a perfect example because there's no that that book in particular is really one of those that you see from above, right? Like you have to read the whole thing and kind of get it as a long gesture, rather than having these short little really dense nuggets like a Marx, for example, where you can find these beautiful sentences that capture certain kinds of feelings about it. And I think unless you have the patience to sort of see that kind of long durée in that book, then it all kind of falls flat. At least it does for me, it, even, no matter how many times I've read it. And so I think that obligation to teach it changes that relationship. I think there's definitely a role-playing element to teaching where whatever it is you're teaching... Ooh. Um, you end up sort of wanting to, uh, I mean, by virtue of wanting to give the, the person you're t- teaching or the, the, a fair shake and not have your students just dismiss it outright, you know, I think you sort of have to get in the mind frame of selling it a little bit. So you do sort of become invested in it. And even if you're selling, I mean, even if you're sort of, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, selling it, like you still have to do that a little bit. And I think, uh, Stuff that as a student where you're mostly sort of responding to the information and then saying, is this good or is this crap? Do I agree with this or do I have no use for this? Um, When you're teaching, the stuff that you might have said, this doesn't personally interest me, well, you still got to teach it. So you sort of, um, you know, you do end up sort of taking on that (laughs) role-playing, you know, uh, uh, stance, I think, towards it. the interesting thing to me, though, is that if the, I think this, there's something to this, and what's like the long-term effect on this is that it ends up uh, making someone who teaches sociology, you know, like we've talked about this, this sort of like disciplinary lock-in that we've talked about a couple times on this show, where you get so stuck in your own sort of perspective and worldview and even department that you don't really look outside. And to what extent does teaching this like this play that role where, you know, if every semester you teach Weber (laughs) and you take on that stance, that Weberian stance towards the world and pitch it to your students and sell it, 
um, at a certain point, you have to kind of believe that the, all the stuff about, oh, there's this special sociological perspective and it's this great way of looking at the world. And, you know, in order to be a good teacher, you almost have to believe that. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's maybe more of a cynical take on it. Maybe. I don't know. Before I taught theory, I wondered about that because when I taught statistics, for instance, like as a qualitative person, I used to have this anti-stats orientation and then I taught statistics and I'm like, statistics is the greatest thing ever, you know, and um, it's I, I knew that part of the fact was now that I was actually learning how to do statistics and another part was I'm playing this role because you can't really teach a class and be like, I know, guys, this is lame, you know, but, you know, bear with me like that just doesn't work in a classroom setting. And then you kind of pick up on it. But then, like you're saying, John, like you kind of feed into the institution because like now as I'm thinking about I can't wait to teach theory again, we'll really get into the text. We'll really go back <laughs> into these esoteric, you know, you're things. You're such that, a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. <laughs> I, I know. And, and like it's the exact same things that I was just saying a little yeah. while ago that I don't like about sociology that it's just yeah, – yeah. It, it's so unstandardized. It's so random for students to – embrace you know because as an undergraduate who's not going to be a doctoral student theory i think is rather difficult because it what's the whole point of reading it but for me it just seems like you have to read the the actual text you have to like suffer through it it's really important to go to this through this suffering process Mm. and it's like that's what makes the discipline esoteric in a way like this is that is that true all right so here you know what this reminds me of um arguments i've had with um religious people who tell me that the reason I'm not I don't I'm not a I'm not a believer is that I haven't really read the Bible enough like you have to really read it you know every day make it a part of your life to really soak in the lessons you know like that kind of sounds like the same argument like you know um if you no, no, Bourdieu doesn't make sense. But if you keep <laughs> reading it eventually, eventually you just give up and accept Stockholm syndrome will set in and you <laughs> identify with your you know uh I think that's, you know, this this is like the critique of, of sociology, right? Is that it's not a science. It's, you know, a bunch of different perspectives that, you know, people belong to in a sort of partisan sense. And it's not a, you know, mature science in the sense that here's this body of knowledge. We all acknowledge that's the starting point from which research takes place. And we move on. We have these like classics that we have to immerse ourselves in. I don't know. Jose, you're the political scientist. Maybe you can come in and say, yeah, this is why you guys aren't serious yet. I don't know. No, but I mean, uh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> I'd like to be able to do that and to like, be, on, be on sort of a perch and say that my discipline is, is better. But uh, no, I mean, look, part is people... Uh, disciplines, mem- people in disciplines being part of research programs is just science in general, right? I mean, that's Kuhn, you know, the yeah. philosophy of science that like you're, everybody's part of a re- different research programs and you have these different competing sort of worldviews in every single discipline. Uh, and, and I mean, in a lot of ways, I actually like sociology. I admire uh, that sociology is more connected to theory than political science is. When I went to grad school, and I'm going to date myself, I'm kind of an old whippersnapper here, I guess. But when I went to grad school, all we talked about was basically, at least Americanist, rational choice theory. Hmm. That was pretty much it. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Right? But that was it. We know the theory. Now we just got to figure out, you know, now we just got to figure out, like, how the different applications of rational choice theory, right? Um, In sociology, it's different because in sociology... You've, uh, you, you know, you have all these different schools and you have all these different sort of perspectives that are very well connected to, to, to empirical 
uh, to empirical sociology. In political science, political theory is like more like political philosophy. It's my six-year-old in the background. <laughs> um, political political theory is not really connected to empirical political science very well, right? I mean, empirical political scientists who do like the science part, they don't they don't use Aristotle to sort of ground their you know their their, their theoretical perspectives. Uh, but but sociologists do use you know Weber or Durkheim or Marx or well, maybe not Marx so much anymore. But you know or or they use well. a different or, or or different like uh, different philosophies actually guide guide sort of ontology and epistemology like you know Husserl and grounded theory and, and phenomenology is actually something that gets incorporated into like you know what some sociologists do. So uh, you know no I don't I mean. I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with the claim that like sociology isn't a real science. But there was something I wanted to say about teaching, about why you might like social theory more as a teacher. One of it. One thing is that you own it as a teacher, whereas yeah. as a student, you're just gra- You're just grasping. You're just you know. You're just trying to stay. At least this is my experience. And I, I actually taught social theory here uh, uh, for two semesters. Um, you're just when you when you take it, you're just sort of struggling just to sort of keep up. You know. But when you teach it, now you have to think about, okay, what's my voice here? How do I own this? Right? And the more you teach it, the more you start cultivating a voice. So you're not just like, okay, here's what this guy says, and I'm just kind of regurgitating it back to an authority figure. Now you're suddenly like, okay, I'm, de- I'm developing kind of a voice, and I'm trying to sort of cultivate this voice, and I'm bringing these people in, and I'm, maybe I'm, ha- I'm, I'm engaging in a dialogue with them, and I'm letting my students into that conversation. So it becomes a lot more attractive. Yeah, that's but, what I was saying when I was like, is it just me liking to hear myself? Because I'm getting really excited about my own research now and like, oh, I see the theoretical relevance of my research, whereas I was kind of not faking it, but not thinking it was, it was a theoretical contribution, but it was an empirical project. Yeah. And, and um, but it, you know, I, I'm constantly like pushing my students to like see the brilliance of Weber and the brilliance of Marx and the brilliance of Durkheim. And it, I just catch myself saying these things. I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> like I, at one, at one degree, I just really love talking, you know, and like yeah. saying, well, this on a podcast. <laughs> of course you love to, of course you love to hear yourself think and you're a, you're an academic. Yeah. That's <laughs> I mean, what we do. This is what, this is what academics do, right? They they like ideas. They like to sort of engage with ideas, and, and they like to hear the ideas coming out of their own voice. Yeah, you know? some type of self love. But you know that's problematic because for students, that's not the orientation they necessarily are getting from theory. Like I, I I sense that some of my students are really enjoying the class, and some other students are like really struggling and, and you know kind of almost drowning in all this reading that I'm assigning. Well, I didn't assign it. It was pre-assigned. But you can just tell they're just like, God, when will the semester end? You can just kind of hear it in their voice. Um, well, it's theory. I mean, exactly. if you get half the class involved, that's a pretty successful job of teaching theory. I mean. Oh, totally. You know. It's pretty funny, though, because every week I feel like some students are just kind of like discovering a theory for the very first time. And it's kind of neat to see that excitement in their writing and they just take it to an extreme, you know, like, Oh, you know, I work in this business. Now I realize I'm just being exploited. And the only way out of this is revolution and, you know, abolish private property. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. You know, you did a very good job teaching. 
<laughs> and then next week it's Durkheim and they're like, oh, yes, elements of religious life. That's what it's all about. It's all about solidarity and then Weber. And it's like it's, it's, it's cool to see. It, it seems kind of mean to be enjoying them, kind of enjoying seeing this like radical shift like they're bipolar or something. But it's, uh, it's pretty fun. Oh, that's good. It's good teaching if you're turning them into bipolar – Thinkers, that's good teaching. That's how we do. Yes, especially in an intro class to get to get somebody excited about something. You know, I mean, we each had to read those books multiple times before it actually sets in what they're trying to do. But to get that spark where somebody wants to learn more, I mean, that's the whole point, especially in an intro class. You know. You know, here's like a, a, a side uh, issue that, that you brought up, John, is, is I, teach, I also teach an internet and politics class, and I assigned him this long Habermas article. Ooh. I knew this was going to be a bad idea going in, but I did it anyway. And, and the, the feedback coming back, you know, like maybe three or four of them really dove into it and sort of, you know, were engaging with the, with the reading. But from the rest of the class, it was like, why are we reading this? This is so long. Why do you assign things that are so long? This is stupid. And so we got on this. Because in the internet class, it really does apply. Uh, is it is there a utility in reading original source material, right? Because yeah. the internet is, you know, this is Nicholas Carr's argument about you know jet skiing through ideas, and Google's making him stupid, and you know, a guy <laughs> writes her uh, Wired magazine wrote Google is making me stupid. The Shallows, he just came out with a book called The Shallows, and Zing. his argument is that he can't read anymore, right? He can't yeah. read long form anything because. He just sort of flits through his RSS feed, and um, and my student, our students are sort of wired to kind of like in, look for the nugget of of info, relevant nugget of information and move on, and they don't really have a lot of tolerance for anything German, right? So Weber would totally be out the window, but like they just don't have any tolerance for like anything that's turgid or that's 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 dense, and so there's a lot in a paragraph where you got to go back, got to sit and unpack it and I just think that that's a that's a, a, a larger societal trend among the students that we're getting, and, and I, it opens up these really interesting questions about like, well, do you assign long form work, or do you just say here, you know, go buy uh, was it Ritzer? Is he still is he still the guy that social theorists use the textbook? Yeah, he's, he's one of the big ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So go you know go read Ritzer and get the get the gist of what Marx is saying, and that's well, that's good enough. Here's what, all right, first there's, there's, there's two things. I think that definitely happens, right? Anyone who's ever assigned reading knows that that's how students react. But is it really getting worse, though? I mean, yeah. I mean I, you know, oh, yeah. and I mean, in the 80s, surely uh, students complained about reading Habermas then, too, right? Yeah but, yeah, but what was the alternative to reading Habermas in the 80s? Yeah, you couldn't just do it like a Don't quick read wiki, it. wiki ch- yeah. uh, search or Google search. Go, yeah, you know, go to class and only listen to lectures or get the cliff's notes or cliff notes <laughs> god bless him but 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 think of the, but the internet is just like cliff cliff notes writ large you know like cliff any cliff note you want at any time at your disposal is one click away free cliff notes you know but it's not even just like trying to shirk work it's that they don't see the utility yeah you know that it, that, that what's the utility of you know, I, I guess there's an argument there. What's the utility of reading Weber when you can get the gist of Weber? You can get the gist of the Protestant ethic by reading, like, a secondhand source. Well, if the gist 
is I mean, I guess that's the that's that's the test. Is it a gist or is it actually a condensed version of Weber that actually captures the full uh nuance of his argument? If it does, then that's a good thing. But if there are things you're missing that go beyond this sort of aesthetic like joy of reading, you know, compound sentences over and over again, like if there's actual content that you're missing, then yeah, it's a problem. I think that that's a simple test. A lot of Famous social theorists don't pass that test where you could say that more concisely. You could put that in just a, a, a couple of pages and and you wouldn't miss a lot. Yes, I remember that was a common gripe of ours. Arturo probably remembers this because we were in the same theory class of how we would you most of these social theorists could never publish or get tenure these days. <laughs> and yet, like, these are the people we're supposed to admire and read and, and that sort of thing. Like. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of a cogent point, too, that I think John was getting at, that, yeah, there's maybe, maybe sometimes the Cliff Notes versions of these things aren't bad, in the sense that, even now, sometimes I feel like that wading through theory books, and I'm just like, man, I've got to get to the point of this, but I can't figure it out. <laughs> but I, I feel like, it, for me, a lot of it is not, a lot of what my job is, I think, as a teacher, is not just teaching the content, it's teaching how to read, Sure. And that and that yeah. students just want to get the gist. They don't want to they don't want to think about the structure of an argument and lo and behold they can't produce one either. <laughs> and I think part of that job is teaching someone it's not this is when you read an article in my class it's not like you're reading an encyclopedia. It's not full of facts that you're just going to have to reproduce for me. And in fact part of your job as a reader is to learn how to see what's in there and engage with it critically. And if there's no bad argument, then they don't learn to find a bad argument. If there's no, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think a really good point. Actually, practices it's... of reading is yeah. as much my job as teaching anthropology, which yeah. to me can only happen if you can read an argument. Because what I I think we don't do simple things, and we don't try to do simple things. We're our our discipline, and I think sociology and in greater sense probably political science as well is invested in trying to see things in complicated ways, and you can't make a chart for that. And I think that's okay. Right. Sure. Yeah. That, it, what we well, do that, is even more valuable be, because the tend to, the societal trend is towards get, gathering information in small chunks. So what you're doing in your class is you're trying to teach students focus and attention, and that's something that the entire society is sort of losing. Right, I mean, no, it's true. Like yeah. John, fifty years ago, everybody wasn't reading Tolstoy or you know Nietzsche or whatever. Right, I mean, but but I think more and more, even the intelligentsia is relying on RSS feeds more than you know books. But and, do you yeah. think? I mean, I agree with you. But and like, I think this goes back to like this whole idea of like deep reading, where you're actively engaging with the material and thinking about the structure of the argument, but. In today's age, where people have are just are dealing with lots of different sources of information. I mean, like people wrote theory when there wasn't a whole lot going on, you know, so they yeah. could focus on theory. But now they're getting messages from all over the world that you know they've kind of developed this ADHD as almost an adaptive skill of yeah. dealing with information. And like in a way, we're from an old generation where we don't read Twitter feeds of books. Um, cause that's, that's what I feel I, I get from my students is just like, this is such a painful process for me to do. And it's not really a process that I, I engage in, right. in, in my other world. And to what extent are we really already living in that other world? And we're just kind of, you know, antiquated teachers in a way, because we're asking them to like, 
turn off the computers, like turn off the music, and just sit down with this book and just read this message. And it's just, it just seems like it's a completely different rhythm than they're used to. Arturo, can I just, I just wanted to hop in and say like this, I, this reminds me a lot of that, uh, discussion we had about the new york times article uh a while back of like what's wrong with the damn kids today right. yeah. um, the, because it, it just kind of i just i couldn't help but picture you as an 80 year old man when you're like we're telling them to <laughs> turn down the music put down the computer hitch up those britches and finally do some work you know and uh i mean i i think there's something like there's definitely something generational about this but i i you know i'm always struck by i feel like maybe Maybe the undergrads are always lazy. You know what I mean? Well, like, I just don't think we'll be reading books yeah, in 50 years. Right. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. But here's, here's an example. I mean, right, let me give you a counterexample, though, right? Because I, I, think, I think there's something to this. I think people that don't want to sit down and read a book or read even long form, you know, nonfiction or fiction, even whatever, uh, are certainly going to be comfortable with Twitter and Facebook and, and whatever. But. Um, at the same time, it, the technologies also open up for for the people who do want to get into get in depth and read more long stuff. It's there. Like for example, so I have a Kindle and I follow a website Maybe. called Long Reads. Right. All it does, the site, it's basically a site for sharing long stuff on the internet. So you know, full articles that are from the New Yorker, or the Atlantic, or you know, something like that. And it's like integrated with uh, Instapaper which is another service that I use that basically lets me bookmark stuff that's long. It puts it in my Instapaper, and then I can export that and put it on my Kindle. So I read way more now than I did before these three things came together because those things, all, all new technology, all on the Internet, all make it easier for me to find things that I can sit down and on the couch and read for a couple hours on Saturday morning, right? It makes it easier to do that. Um, and... The, the same thing with, um, you know, e- ebooks and things like that, too, is that there's now a medium for publishing long form stuff in, uh, you know, on, in an electronic fashion that allows you to engage with that material for long periods of time. Right. So I don't think there's anything like uh, that. There doesn't. I think we just need to separate like the the technology aspect of it from the attention span aspect of it from the like different people's motivations and willingness to do certain kinds of reading. Right. Cause I mean, just looking at my own life, there's more room in my sort of daily flow to have more kinds of in-depth reading than there were a few years ago, simply because of these new sort of web technologies too. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that, the technology opens up a lot of different ways of being in the world. But if you think about the technology as sort of like providing as like a pipeline of information, right? Or a pipeline of like content, you know, it's like, where, whereas like maybe 50, 70 years ago, students were getting a drip of content to compete with maybe what they were assigned in school. Now they're just getting like, you know, the floodgates, right? You know, the, like, they're getting just like a fire hose full of content of information, and so they're not lazy. They're not. They're definitely not lazy. It's just that they have so much content. They have so much out there that they could be engaging with that they have to figure out how to manage it all, right? And so when somebody comes in and says, "Read fifty pages of Habermas," they're already kind of trying to like negotiate all of that content that's out there. And you know, they they have greater expectations of efficiency. Well, maybe I should put it. I, I, hmm. That's what well, that's, I'd put it that way. They have a greater expectation, and this actually leads into the next topic if you want to go there but 
I think we as a people have a greater expectation of efficiency and results about everything. And we have less tolerance for like, you know, uh, the turgid argument or nuance or unpacking things or, you know, complexity or um, because we have uh, because we have so much that we have to deal with and so much that we have to manage that we're just trying to figure out how to, like, make sense of it all. Yeah, I I like that point because I feel like I can only read theory first thing in the morning. Like I have to get up at 6.30 and read for two hours before checking my email, before checking anything. Because as soon as I start checking information, like I get this feeling of anxiety because I'm not getting the point. You know, like, oh, I'm reading Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism and I've read it for 45 minutes and I feel like I should be moving on to something else at this point. You know, like you can't breeze through that reading in 45 minutes, you need right. two, three hours. And who's willing to put aside two to three hours when there's so much going on in that period? So I think that issue of efficiency is like a pretty key thing that it's hard to recognize as academics because this is our job. But for students, I mean, they must feel like, are you kidding me? You're actually wanting me to sit down and not do anything but this one task for three hours? It's it's anti-theoretical to to everything else that I do on a daily basis. I hate to be old-fashioned, but so what? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's honestly I my feeling. Like, I, I, damn kids I think we, we make a fundamental mistake if we assume that life used to be simple and now it's complex, hmm. right? Like, it's always been complex in a variety of ways. You, there's always oh, been yeah, lots granted. to do, right? Lots to do, lots to accomplish. Things used to take much longer, simple things that we can accomplish now in more quickly, but now we have different kinds of distractions. So it's not as though there's, this is a fundamentally new set of propositions. And I think, you know, for people who are disposed to enjoy the complexity of, of complicated arguments, be those political, economic, academic, whatever kinds you want to talk about, they've always been willing to work through material. And there are people who never have and never will like that kind of thing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake to say that, you know, since it's hard and people don't like to do it, we should think about how we're going to stay relevant. Because then that we just start participating in the exact same thing that everybody else is doing. Like, how can we make it quicker and faster and easier and sexier? And I don't mm. think that that's, while I think it's important to engage people in the material, in a fundamental way, I don't think it's our job to get in there and try to compete with, you know, Facebook. We will lose. Like, there's no, you know what I'm saying? I try to refrain from uh, quoting The Simpsons as much as possible in a semi-attempt to look serious on this podcast, but I I just, I can't, this conversation, there's just a great episode where Bart plays hooky from school and Principal Skinner's trying to track him down, and he says, I can't believe it, I've gone to the bird watching society the 4-h club the roller rink and he's not anywhere am i that out of touch and then he pauses and no no it is the children who are wrong and like uh i mean but it's it's I mean, emblematic of this conversation but i think you're exactly right um eric in that kind of like you know there's no habermas is not going to compete with the twitters and the face tubes and the u-books or whatever um but it's a it's probably a mistake to try it right and also kind of condescending too, you know like it's got a very michelle pfeiffer and dangerous minds vibe when you try to like jazz it up you know uh and ultimately i think you know most people aren't really going to be drawn to theory because it takes a peculiar type of person to be interested in sitting down and reading thick tomes regardless of what else is available but 
at some point you just have to kind of, I think, present them as is and, you know, the few that are into that kind of thing will be into that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with both what both of you guys are saying. I don't. I, look, uh, the human experience doesn't change. We haven't evolved, you know, in, in the ten years at the internet. Uh, you know, yeah, we haven't. You know, we, our cognition is limited. We're a human, but in life has always been complex, no doubt, right? But t- but technology does change sort of the stimuli that the call, I guess, that we as a society receive. And I think that we we receive more data and more stimuli than when I was than twenty thirty years ago. And that's not just youth; that's everybody. I don't think it's a generational thing. I agree. We shouldn't be saying, "Oh, you young kids." And uh, it, it's just that it's a it's a different set of challenges that our students and even us that we have to confront. And I think things like Habermas are actually a good thing because turgid, difficult, complex readings focus train us to sort of pay attention. We don't get as many. I don't think we get as many opportunities to pay attention that we might have gotten 150 years ago. Right where it, I think that there's fewer. There's, it's easier to be distracted than it might have been in previous generations. And the, and things like reading hard or literature, reading social theory, fo- forces you to pay attention in a way that Twitter doesn't. It's funny. There is this kind. You know, I was mentioning um, uh, Instapaper and and the, my Kindle earlier, and there is this kind of backlash, um, sort of among technical people on the internet over this sort of like, uh, you know, 50 million things going on at once stuff. So like, I don't know if you've, any of you have seen these trends, but there's these uh, increasingly popular, like full screen writing applications that basically take you back to the blue screen, you know, where you had nice. like just text and a one is just page. A black, yeah. 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 And there's like, there's one called like right room. Do the they have the light really green popular. and dark green? That's that. exactly what they have. It's green oh, and black. Oh God, I want to find that. Um, I, I can I can send you the link. I've I've used it before. And actually, it emulates the typing sound. Oh God, that'd be <laughs> oh, awesome. God. You, you can turn that off. Though, the typewriter. The, the key yeah. question is: turn when you hit enter. Can I play text-based uh, sports games and number munchers on it? That's the. I other think you're level. missing the point, Jesse. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's there's like a whole bunch of there's like this trend towards um like you know simple full screen applications where you know you can't be distracted by email and Twitter. You know, um, there are no 15 toolbars surrounding what you're doing so that you can't focus on what's important, you know. And there are, like, these blogs, like, devoted to, like, minimal computing and, like, you know, like, screenshots of, I'm not making this up, like, people will post screenshots of their desk that's, like, (laughs) empty except for a laptop. And then, like, talk about, like, you know, like, how zen this makes them feel when they're working. That's awesome. There's a website called Um, Lifehacker. Yeah, that, that talks about all this kind of stuff, and then there's all these applications that will allow you to browse, search selected websites, and it'll shut, it'll deny access to your to that website after like a prescribed amount of time. So you say, mm-hmm. I only want to browse for 20 minutes, and then it'll automatically kill your your ability to go to that application for. for so it's after, basically after just like outsourcing self control. Yeah. Well, there's there's one there's one that you can install that basically will shut off your network connection for like however much time you specify, and there's nothing you can do to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know. really gotta not trust yourself at that point. You know, it's the old uh, you know, um, the the sirens and and uh, oh, shit. we're talking about being able to read obscure things, and I can't even think of the most famous example. Yeah. Who was it that tied themselves so that the, the sirens wouldn't distract him or whatever? Odysseus. <laughs> I don't know. You know what you're, you know, you know that right now you don't want to check your email, but you know that in 15 minutes you will. So, 
you have to turn off email entirely so that in 15 minutes you won't be tempted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I often choose places that don't have Wi-Fi to go work just so I can't do it. Because sure, otherwise, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, there is an addictive quality to it. It's a quick hit of information. Yeah. Where I notice is if I'm trying to write, and if you don't have any internet, and you're just writing, and you forget a particular fact, you know, like it's a citation, or you, you want to mention, like, something, and you forget the city, or some obscure part of what you're trying to write, if you have the internet, you go over to your browser and you look it up, you know? When what you should really do is just sort of, you know, make some sort of note in the text, like, come back here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> fix it later and you just keep writing. But like when you when you have the internet it's really hard to do something like writing for a sustained period of time when at least once a sentence there oh did I spell that right or you know what's that citation again or what year was that, you know. See, I don't know. I'm pretty much the exact opposite in that if I don't have those things to like make breaks, little things like checking my email or something, then I'm going to get up and do something completely unrelated like go, you know, be like, oh, I really got to get those dishes out of the sink before I go on with this, you know, or something. Right. Um, yeah, but at least that's productive. <laughs> well, in some yeah. sense. That's why coffee shops work, though, because coffee shops, you, you can't just take a nap, you know. You got to sit there. I mean, the, at most, you can get up and go to the bathroom, you know. Fair like, you, there's not a whole lot you can do, so. Are you napping for long long hours of the, the day? Me? I wish. That's all John does. <laughs> You know, it's just an example. It's, it's harder to do at a coffee shop, you know? It's kind of embarrassing. Well, you know, at Starbucks, you can just perch yourself in a corner there. I don't think anybody mind. <laughs> I was going to say, it depends how cool your coffee shop is, really. <laughs> I don't know. I, I talk in my sleep, so that kind of scares me. They'd probably say, oh, that's that homeless sociologist. John in the night terrors. <laughs> keeps, him out, keeps him out of so many coffee shops. I thought Jose had an interesting uh, provocation before about this sort of soundbite messaging, what are people willing to hear kind of stuff, which I think is, was a huge part of how the election came down, at least in my opinion. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, I'm sure um, you've heard this before, but the party in power loses heat string midterms, right? But they don't lose this many. I mean, this was, this was pretty seismic, right? 65, I don't know what the number is. Yeah, right. Shellacking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty seismic, and it's seismic on uh, different levels, right? I think the Republicans won something like over 600 state legislative seats, and that hasn't happened since since uh, well, since Watergate. Right? That was the last time that there was that a, a shift of that many Same. seats in state legislatures. So, I mean, it was it was a, it was pretty big, right? Um, but does it does it really matter? I mean, does it have any long term? Uh, does it have a long term effect or a long term consequence? But, uh, you know, I do get this sense, though, that when you when you look inside the polling, you find that, like, this is not like an electorate that's saying anything right? definitive. Everybody like that. You're talking about the Daily Show, Arturo. The, the Daily Show did a great job. But this whole thing about what, it, what people, uh, everybody in the news media is saying, oh, the president doesn't get it. You know, and they get this great thing about how, like, what do they mean by it? What is it <laughs> that's there to get? Right. Because on the one hand, you know, the electorate says. Uh, they're really concerned about spending, about you know too much spending. But on the other hand, they they're really they're really angry that 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 part of the health care bill was reducing benefit Medicare benefits, right? So like you know there's there's just this really muddled electorate out there. And I mean it's always like that because it's obviously America's it's a it's a composite it's a pluralist. We have a lot of different views, 
So there's no real there's no real it to be gotten because everybody has different opinions about things. But you know, at the same time, it seems that like even people and this this is a, this might just be a characteristic of the American electorate that people hold contradictory views about their political preferences at the same time. So they can at the same time be against a health care bill, but when you ask about the particulars, they support practically every piece of it. Hmm. Except for the mandate. Nobody likes the mandate. The insurance companies like and the I'm, mandate. Yeah, right. Except for the insurance companies, right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, there, there is this sort of like, you know, there's a real problem in, in, uh, in democratic attention. People are making political decisions without very good information about politics. It might have always been this way, but, but it seems that like we're hitting this odd crescendo you know, in American politics where more and more people are making political decisions about less and less uh, or on, on less and less facts with less and less facts and, uh, uh, and, and more muddled in their, in their views about, about the political process. So I just kind of expect this oscillation. You know, this back and forth where, like, we're angry at one party, and then we're, you know, two years later, we'll be angry at this party in power. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens in 2012, you know. Um, yeah. I was going to so, ask, like, don't political scientists, like, use, like, economic indicators like the jobless rate or, you know, sure. number of states in deficit spending to predict pretty yeah. much what, what's going to happen? So it, yeah, is this more of it? Would it predict – what what yeah. happened just now that you know? The- yeah, it, w- it, w- it would predict most of it, but not all of it, hmm. right? I mean, campaigns matter, but they matter at the margins. So, you know, the economy would predict that Harry Reid's going to have a challenge. It's going to be tough, right? Or the economy, it would predict that well, you know, it's going to be tough for the Democrats. But the, but then there's a margin of error there, give or take. You know, I, I saw I think uh, New Republic had a. Uh, it's talking about one political scientist who who said that if you model it in different different economic factors, Democrats should lose forty five seats. So mm-hmm. they lost sixty five, right? So if you say, well, you know, plus or minus ten, or you know, they, it was plus or minus twenty in this case. So if, so if they if they would have been brilliant at campaigning, maybe they could have gotten it down to twenty five instead of instead of forty five. You know, so yeah, I mean, the economy obviously sets the context. For, for, for the game you're playing, but, but elections matter. You know, you can, you can move that, it sets the baseline, but then you can go up and down or you can, you can do better or worse than, than the economy would expect you to. And, and the Democrats, yeah, they definitely did worse than, than, than you would expect them to, even given historical economic trends. I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. They, they uh, underperformed even and, you know, there's some interesting research out there, like quick back of the envelope stuff that says the Republicans are just really efficient with their distribution of votes. So they only got like 51 percent, 52 percent of the overall popular vote, but they got them in places where they really needed them. They eked out a lot of 51, 49s, 52, 48s, where the Democrats, where they won, it was more like 60, 40, 65, 35. So... Um, so yeah, so the economy explains a lot, but it doesn't it doesn't explain it all. You know, at the risk of sounding like an idiot, I have to say I don't remember paying this much attention to a midterm election before. I mean, is that a new phenomenon too that just the amount of campaign spending is making these midterm elections and elections in general seem much more high risk than they actually are? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure campaigning probably has something to do with that. Just that this is the most expensive midterm ever, right? In terms of that, I can get into the Citizens United point that you wanted to bring up. 
So, I mean, having information out there, getting, you know, letting people know about it. I think actually there's an upsurge in turnout in terms of engagement. That the, 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 the populace is actually more engaged um, than, than in years past. Uh, and even, even young people. Young people didn't vote appreciably less than they did in 2006. They just voted less than they did in 2008. So, yeah, that, that was going to be my point. Like for a midterm election, I would imagine it was a pretty good showing for young people, just not as good as. Yeah, it was average. Hmm. A little, maybe a little higher than average. Just like actually in two thousand and eight, they did pretty good, but it wasn't that much higher than it was higher. But it wasn't any much any it, the the increase in the amount of in the eighteen to twenty nine vote wasn't any greater than the increase in any any other groups. Just most people were mobilized, right? So, I mean, like 18 to 29s voted at a higher rate than they usually do, but so did everybody else. So, and so here in 2010, 18 to 29-year-olds, they were about 11, 12% of the electorate. In, in, in 2006, they were about 11, 12% of the electorate. So it's not that they weren't turning out as much. It's that, it's that in 2008, a disproportionate amount of them went Democratic. Um, and, it, yeah, I mean, it, this year, you know, what really happened to the president, it's not just that youth stayed home and seniors came out, it's that independents or so-called independents, you know, there are very few actual independents, but so-called independents shifted in pretty large numbers from uh, Democrat to Republican. And there's an interesting uh, post by a guy, by, um, well, somebody up in your parts, uh, Harry Boyd, uh, I think he's at the University of Minnesota. Yeah. Yes. You know, basically making the argument that one of the one of the big reasons that you that that the Republicans did so well was that independents are are more and more identifying as conservative. So conservatives are actually gaining in terms of in terms of the label. So there are more and more there are more and more leaners who are moving towards the identif self identification as a conservative. So you know why that's happening. Well, you know, I don't know. That's a good question, but. Well, the, the labels themselves are tricky because yeah. conservatives is something that conservatives have embraced. Um, there's no label that everyone on the left has embraced. There's yeah. liberals, progressives, and, and, and more, and, and, and they're all sort of dirty words thanks to yeah. you know, sort of hard lobbying by the right as well as complete lack of conviction on, on, on much of the left, right? I mean, I think so like there's that issue of, you know, more people say they're conservatives and conservatives are more sort of proud to say they're conservatives. But then again, there's something right. about maybe, you know, you know, there's the yeah, question absolutely. why that is. But that doesn't necessarily translate directly into votes or views on issues. You know, I mean, that's like the. the well, it translates a little bit into votes. I mean, I do hear you that that, okay. that the label, right, the label certainly like connotes. You, I mean, you could say, oh, I'm conservative. I. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't want to, I, I don't like, uh, I don't like comedians using the F word or, you know, whatever, right? Like you can certainly like uh, uh, attach that label to your lifestyle choices. But, but there is, I mean, uh, 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 it's better for Democrats if more people, if fewer people identify as conservatives and more, you know, even if, my, even if my, there's a, yeah. Go my ahead. dad's one of those people who has, you know, been a lifelong Republican and, a party line Republican for a long time, and then just in the last couple of years has decided that the mainstream Republican Party has overstepped their bounds in terms of their sort of moral intrusions 
into his life. And, and, you know, he's also in the Pacific Northwest and following the great tradition of libertarianism is to, is in many ways really committed to a lot of the fiscal financial policies and some of the, you know, sort of philosophies of, you know, being suspicious of big government, but he just can't abide the sort of religious elements and is now identifying himself as an independent, but, you know, nine times out of 10, he's going to vote Republican. Right. Right. He's a leaner. Yeah. Yeah. So is that what you mean when you say that most independents aren't real independents? Right. Yeah. They're all leaders in some way or other. Yeah. But it's a lay. I mean, look, all of these are labels, right? All of these are th- are like affectations. I like to think of myself as an independent. So, you know, I mean, like right when you when you ask the people in the Tea Party, right? <laughs> oh, what are you? Oh, I'm an independent. I don't yeah. like either party, but ninety percent of them, you know, ident- voted Republican or or. or when when asked about where they would vote, they'd vote Republican, right? So they they it's it's nice to say you're an independent, but you know at the end of the day, right? If you're if you're holding a placard calling Obama Nazi and you know yeah and, and talking about like you know keeping the well yeah there you go keeping the government off my Medicare, and, <laughs> then you're probably but you're still probably on the right. You know? Yeah. Well, um, there's this there's this whole like fetishization of being a moderate and being yeah. independent in our political culture anyway. You know, as if the best way to solve any problem is to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and mush them together. And uh, that's obviously not always true. But then again, that's what Democrats have done, right? (laughs) And they get lambasted for it. I mean, they get no credit at all for basically enacting Bob Dole's 1996 health care plan. Well, let's give them to give them. I'm, I'm the, I mean, I'm the first guy to make that critique. But to, to, to be fair to the Democrats on that point, they, they were defending a lot of seats in Republican districts. Yeah. You know, they, they, won, the, they, were, they won a whole lot of seats in 2008 where, you know, they probably had no business holding on to them in the first place. Right. So, so you know, they, they, they take that short term political view of it. And, and you know, there's, a, there's some, some interesting that the monkey cage blog that you uh, – you had John John Sides on a couple of weeks ago. Um, they did. They had a real good analysis of like uh, uh, that voting for the health care bill cost Democrats in those in those blue dog races. I mean, people who voted for the health care bill did take a hit. Really, so it wasn't like oh yeah, and in those like you know in those blue in those red districts where that were being that where there was a blue seat. You know, if you were. That was a Democrat in a red in a red district. If you voted for the health care bill, there seems to be some early suggestions that you know that they took a they took a political price for that. I mean, you know, I think part of the reason that they lost sixty five instead of forty five was because of the health care bill. And no doubt, you know, people didn't like it. That the selling the idea of a of a mandate is, is tough, right? Um, so. From one perspective, you can say, "Yeah, I, I totally get Republic, the Democrats trying to sort of." Go- I mean, that's sort of the, the the burden of governing, is that you need to go and get the the opposition on your side, right? You need to sort of you need to govern because you're in control. So the op- you know, you need it's your burden to get the opposition to play along, right? The opposition's goal is to become the majority, right? And they they did that. I mean, you would hope that what the Democrats could be able to peel. A few of those Republicans, mean, traditionally, the, the party in power could peel some votes away from the minority and, and form a governing coalition out of it. And just Republicans were remarkably disciplined and gave no quarter. Right. I mean, that's that's good party discipline. That's good. My good politics as the minority may not be good for governing. It may not be, you know, goo goo, as they say. Right. But but it's really good for governing. So 
you know, I, I understand why the Democrats did that. But, you know, the other side of it is that, yeah, you, you have a real brand problem when when you you don't even believe in you're the Democrats and you don't even believe in, you know, what your base believes in. You know, when the mainstream people in your party don't even like don't ask, don't tell is a great example. You know, when you can't even get that, when you can't even like stand up for that because you're afraid of these 50 blue dog, you know, southern what's going to happen to these 50 red districts. You don't even go for something that's really popular. And as a core principle of your party, then, yeah, it really does sort of. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking uh, on that point, um, how they've sort of, well, I would say sold out the mainstream of their party, but maybe not catered to the main or catered to the, the base of their party. Um, there's Bill Maher had a thing where he was calling John Stewart to task about the rally to restore sanity and the false comparisons and blah, blah, blah. But he was talking about how, like, you know, in the sort of even base ideas like you just said don't ask don't tell repeal right of uh, is not is rarely if ever picked up by the democratic party where the sort of like far flung ideas of conservatism like obama is a socialist muslim is picked up by very mainstream like elected representatives of the republican party and they're much better at sort of like i don't know containing and and co-opting that sort of base whereas democrats don't even really seem interested in what they the people like the big groundswell that brought them into power had to or wanted or was aiming for. I think, I think this is tricky, too, because I think, I mean, talking about Democrats as a whole, I mean, there's a lot of progressive liberal Democrats in Congress. Sure. And I mean, just I mean, just even like what we're really talking about is not even so much even the House, just as the Senate and the fact that there's people like Evan Bayh and Ben Nelson who can hold up you know, any sort of liberal progressive thing and sort of play it for as much as it's worth politically to them. You know, I mean, talking about the Democrats as a whole, there's, you know, there's a lot of liberal Democrats pushing for these things in the House. They're horrible at like the PR aspect of it relative to Republicans. Yeah, know? right. At the, at the end of the day, that's a branding problem. It, you, the, could, could, you know, Republicans have a much broader base to start with. They're a lot more self-identified, even though, you know, it doesn't, it's not determinative, but there are a lot more people who are self-identified conservatives. And, you know, they, they, and, and liberals, there are not that many self-identified liberals, and they're all sort of geographically on the coasts, you know. Um, so, so Democrats have to f- patch together a much, you know, a much uh, more diverse coalition ideologically than Republicans do. And that's, that's been the case for at least four decades. We just need to simplify the narrative, you know. We we're not liberals; we just hate conservatives. I think that would be uh, <laughs> the platform well, to run on. Actually, yeah. you know what? I would be happy with that if we could just even agree to say that, like liberals, like just even agree on a like that. You can't even get that far. Well, yeah. that's my point. Like, I mean, <laughs> there is. I mean, what does it mean? And there's different yeah. debates about who is and who is not. And it's just well, the conservatives. You know what a conservative stands for. And you know what you're voting for, whereas, you know, I mean, if if Democrats knew they were going to lose so many seats, maybe not 65, but they're going to lose a majority of seats, you would think that they would at least stick to their principles about what is it exactly that they're standing for and not, you know, well, I'm not Nancy Pelosi and, you know, I didn't vote for mm-hmm. uh, the health care re- debate or, you know, the, somebody even mentioned like Obamacare. I didn't vote for Obamacare and you're. Like wow, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, way to stick it, together. There was a great <laughs> Onion headline last week that was like, 
you know, congressional Democrats, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down fleeing from everything we stand for. (laughs) But then their operatives would contend that they would have lost a lot more if they didn't do that. But see, that's the problem is that the, I mean, take that like the healthcare barrel. We just talked about that. I mean, if you go piece by piece, you know, it's like 70% approval among the population for the healthcare bill and people don't like the mandate. Right. And people don't like the bill itself because they don't like the way Congress works. But they just did such a poor job to me. I mean, there's a very simple mm-hmm. narrative that ties that all together, you know. Like, At least don't use the conservative narrative to run on the platform. Don't call it Obamacare. I mean, that seems just yeah. absurd to me, you know. Oh, like Democrats doing it? Yeah. 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 I mean, like, for example, uh, I, like, you know, I, uh, I'm in um, uh, suburban Kansas City on the Kansas side, and we had we had a Democratic representative for many years, Dennis Moore, and his uh, he's retiring and in kind of an odd like this shows how like empty the bench is in the Democratic Party in Kansas. His wife ran to fill in <laughs> for him, and she was horrible. I mean, like I couldn't believe it. I listened to the radio. There's like an interview with her, and I'm like screaming at my radio at what an awful. First of all, how completely unprepared she was to answer questions in a political campaign, and this was like a couple weeks before the election. And also, how on every call, if I didn't know who she was, I honestly wouldn't know what party she belonged to. The only way I knew what party she belonged to is that the callers would call in and say things like, "Will you support Nancy Pelosi as majority as you know party leader if you're elected?" And of course, she shied away from answering it and gave a non-answer. And it's like, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, even that sort of stuff, you know, um, I guess I just wanted to rant about that. I forgot what my point was. I mean, I think, you know, the the economy, no matter how well you sold health care, the fact that unemployment is 9.6 percent was going to override any ability i mean it, like i said before it matter at the margins but i i mean i, I think you know there is just it's such a strong st- the currents were so like in the in the republicans favor just like in 2008 the currents you know john mccain's is an uphill climb you know it was it was, it was kind of like you know baked in the cake that the democrats were going to win just by how much you know and they were really going to have to screw it up to screw it up it's not that it's impossible but nine times out of ten the democrat was going to win that race so basically what you're saying is that if employment goes da- or if unemployment goes down in 2012 the Democrats will do well yeah, or sure. we'll have president Palin. Oh lord. Dude, Biden Palin 2012. <laughs> I am praying for that ticket for so many reasons. Probably, I'd almost yeah. vote for it just for the sheer entertainment purpose. <laughs> you know, the thing for midterm elections though, I I kind of revert back to the the party more than the person and I find it interesting that like in these campaigns, especially in like California, you hear all these negative ads about Barbara Boxer. And like, I don't like Barbara Boxer as a person. I'm sure she wouldn't be a nice friend to have, you know, if she gives crappy Christmas gifts or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't really care that much, but I do know that if she's a Democrat, that she will likely vote with whatever the Democrats are trying to do in the House or in the Senate. You know, yeah. like, I'm not sure. voting for a leader, but it right. becomes so like personal, you know, personal about. Yeah. Their character, well, like, but they're not leading the country per se. You know, they're not. They're just voting on these things. And yes, they could be yeah. writing bills. But why do I really care if she's kind of annoying during Senate hearings or she? No, has most a- people don't. I mean, most people use party cues, right? This is why, like, even this is why, like, the Democrats just got swept away because people were using party cues, and more Republicans turned out than Democrats. 
So they just all across the country, everybody got swept under. But in the Senate, people use party cues less because they're high profile races. You see millions of dollars of ads, there's a lot of focus, there's a lot of attention on them. So, you know, uh, you can have Meg Whitman in the, in the, in the undocumented Manny, you know, mm-hmm. or housekeeper, right? You can have that affect a race in a way that wouldn't happen at the, at the House level because the House races aren't as high profile. So, I mean, party cues matter, but they matter, they matter more when in low information races. I was thinking that, too, because a lot of the, um, just in, like, the local elections here, you know, I mean, sometimes they're party-based and sometimes they're not. And it's really hard when they're not, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's, uh, you know, I mean, I'll do what I can to be, be an educated voter, but I don't know all the issues in all of these races, and I certainly don't know the individual personal character of all of these people, you know, and it's like that's what parties are for, right? Yeah. But at the same time, we have this sort of worst of both worlds system where, okay, that's the ideal party. Well, we could just vote for parties, right? That's the way they do it in a lot of countries, right? But instead, we have this like sort of a weird party system, highly partisan system, but also this sort of cult of personality that comes along with all these individual races. Um, and right. it's just a headache. Candidate-centered politics. It's a 20th century phenomenon. I mean, some people say, well, TV, you know, is the big reason why that's happened is people can see, you know, you can broadcast now. So the the personality of the candidate is what really matters. But in in other countries that are, you know, you vote for a party, not the candidate, has this become more candidate-centric anyway? Yeah, I mean... Even in parliamentary systems, you know, look at the Brits, right? And for their first, uh, their first pr- d- prime minister debate ever. Last, really? last cycle. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I'll be. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, I mean, so they, they uh, it, so, it, you know, it, who was it like? Uh, it, it, it's even, even in places that are like parliamentary, uh, that, you know, where you vote for the party, there's still, you know, there's still candidate centered features. And, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I'm less concerned about that than I'm concerned about the the, the expectations and the and the you know the 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 difficulty that the public seems to have of just making difficult choices. I mean, you know, we are confronting some, and, and every everybody every generation says this, but but I do wonder if there's something qualitatively different about this generation that we're headed towards. You know, like a, 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 some a completely unsustainable. You know, uh, uh, imbalance between revenue and spending, and we could grow ourselves out of it, but it, th- this is not 20 years ago, right? You, you don't just have like Japan. Everybody's oh yeah, Japan, they're going to become the new emerging power. I mean, you have multiple country, different regions of the world competing and for for global dominance. And are we going to have? Are we going to be able to grow our way out? Grow our way out of our our spending challenges? And I don't know. I mean, that's. That's the thing that scares me because it seems like it's undeniable that the United States is going to go down from being this super world power where there's no other country that can challenge it. Kami. And, well, I'm just saying really? like the BRIC countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, like I was reading somewhere that like the Chinese middle class is going to be larger than the entire U.S. population. Like you can't deny the fact that that kind of consumer power that that country will carry will naturally mean a decline in – the amount of influence and power that the United States has. And I think that's, you know, it's scary and it means there's going to be a, a, a decline. 
But you either face that or you like put your head in the sand or say, I want to believe that America is the greatest country in the world. And it, we can't – like, I feel like what, what somebody like Sarah Palin runs on is arrogance. Is like I don't oh, need yeah. to know the constitution. I don't need to know this. I just need to love my country. And I think that's a really you know, persuasive argument that like you know, it's those naysayers who don't love America who think that things are declining. I think things are actually increasing. And I think that's such a tragic – political narrative to run a country on because it's so unrealistic like we can't have an economy based on malls you know like we can't have an economy based on credit card debt like Mm. we need to worry about these issues about Mm. what does the post-industrial america look like what are we going to be doing for the next 50 years you know like these are hard questions to ask and answer and they deserve like some difficult choices to be made but instead of making those choices we're just like having this weird nostalgia like we're plugging our ears with our fingers and saying la 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 you know i mean it's i i was just at the barbershop the other day it was just, uh, maybe two days after the election and you know we're making small talk about california politics and national politics and the woman who was cutting my hair was saying you know, back in the 40s and 50s, we used to make things in this country. We used to make, you know, you could, if your radio broke, you could take it down to the store where you bought it and they would fix it for you. But now we just throw it away, right? She's telling this whole story about how she has a friend who has a new business and she's having these little things that she's invented made in Japan. And even though, or in China, excuse me, and even though every 10th box comes and it's built incorrectly and she has to throw it away, it's still cheaper to throw away every 10th box and pay the Chinese to make it than it is to make it here in the United States. And so I was saying, well, you know, that, you know, it's, it's kind of the, it's an ideal business model, right? You get, that's the, the, the main objective is to get cheap labor. So we have no reason to pay people in the, in the United States to make anything. And every time we would get in this circular argument where she would go, yeah, but we just don't make anything anymore, you know? And so I would say, yeah, some, right. That this was very highbrow conversations with your barber. Yeah, <laughs> I do my best, you know, we're trying to kill some time, but it, we talk no matter what I was trying to talk about, you know, like, well, the incentives are to, to send jobs other places where they're cheaper. And why would you pay someone down the street from you th- 10 times as much to make something if the guy in the next town could make it cheaper? She's like, yeah, but we still don't make anything. Anymore. I mean, it just kept going over and over and over and over again. I was like, that's right. Let's talk about sports. You know? <laughs> I was listening to um, the interview that speaking of not to bring Bill Maher up twice in the same episode, um, but the interview that he had with Jimmy Carter. I don't know when it was because I saw it online. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's 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 fascinating because it paints. Well, I mean, it's an interview with Jimmy Carter, so he paints himself in a positive light, believe it or not. Um, but like just talking through like when he was president, like they cut in half the amount of the barrels of oil, the amount of barrel of, barrels of oil that the country was importing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's tripled since then. Right. Mm-hmm. And he installed, uh, you know, uh, uh, solar panels. Yes. Thank you. Solar panels on the White House. And, like Reagan tore him down. And of course, he got, you know, defeated God, big time That's awesome. in the election and you know one of the things they were talking about is how like now no politicians want to ask um you know citizens to do anything you know it's elect us because we have the answers and we'll do this for you you know and you know politicians running on a platform of elect me 
I'll let you do a lot of stuff for the country. <laughs> um, just isn't appealing, you know. And then they get back, they get back to like, like the, th- the point that we were making about healthcare. Like the sales pitch is, look, here are all these really great things in this bill. The trade-off is you can't have free riders. You know, everyone's got to be in the system. You know, right. you can't have people right. who don't buy insurance because that makes it expensive for everyone else. And someday they'll need it. And they're free riders. That's exactly what they are. And I don't understand why that simple argument can't be made. Well, that's why because then you're you don't want to be come across as telling people what to do and and asking too much of 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 the country you know it's crazy because well and partly for because of, for the democrats because since the 1960s the democrats have been portrayed as the pro minority pro you know gay rights pro you know other party you know the other in quotes right? mm-hmm. so anytime you try to pass social legislation it can get very easily get perceived as like, well, you're doing this to help the other. You're doing this to help that other group of people, those freeloaders, those people who don't deserve it. And, you know, on top of that, if you have an African-American president, you know, it, it gives these implications. Like there's this rumor going around saying that, like, Muslims are exempt from the mandate. If you type this, <laughs> if you type this in awesome. Google, there's a belief, there's, there's a sort of. There's this underground, you know, like urban legend that people say that people are saying like uh, uh, Obama has exempted uh, Muslims from uh, from Ob- from the mandate, from the individual mandate. So That's awesome. I don't know exactly how that works and like, geop- you know, strategic geopolitics like, you know, he wants to like make sure all the, the Muslims have more income to fund the jihad or I'm not sure how that works, but because they're not buying health care. You know what I mean? Like, so that, that's what makes the argument harder is that like, you know, the the populism in a in a multicultural multi-ethnic society populism is a harder just a harder sell because you know ethnic people start people and the republicans are very good at kind of like saying you know us versus them you know we're we're Demo- liberals liberals are about inclusiveness we want to understand the other and republicans say no the other wants to kill us there's nothing you don't need to understand it just go read you know go read the good book you know so and makes i think it hard. that's the protestant ethic right the the good book right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go read it for like hours at a time and soak it all in, right? Spirit of, yeah, yeah, spirit of capitalism, yeah. Definitely. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think kind of combining those both points, I think one of the reasons that it's sort of easier to sell the sort of modern brand of conservatism or Tea Partyism or whatever the hell that it is, is that it's to the audience it's addressed to, the message is you don't need to change anything. Like, you're doing fine. In fact, we should be doing more of what you do, and we shouldn't be worried about other things. And it's so much – I mean, it's just such an easier message to sell, um, especially, you know, if the many things that are going wrong probably aren't directly affecting you and to lesser extent these people, you know, and you just say – Look, you're you're chugging along fine, man. America it kicks ass. Like in case you haven't checked, you know, and boom, and and it's just such an easier message to say than like, look, we all really need to fundamentally restructure our lives because the way we're living is unstable. You know, that's a downer. That is a, that is a major downer. Yeah, I mean, and it'll be interesting. Well, it'll be very obvious to see what happens. I think where you have, um, you know, um, is it Paul Ryan or Ryan Paul? All these Paul, Paul yeah, confusion. Like, no, no, the other guy, uh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. <laughs> like, he's 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 actually proposed like let's yeah. cut Medicare, let's right. cut Social Security, you know, and mm-hmm. has a ser- semi serious proposal for how to do it. The problem is like that's that's unpopular. So will they okay. actually take the hard steps of saying, okay, you're here's here's what we're gonna cut, 
here's where it will hurt or or not. I'm guessing not. But yeah, I'm guessing not not before 2012. Well, one part of the problem with that, too, is that I think that Democrats are less willing to take the, you know, do you really want to kill your grandma argument that I think that the Republican Party has been really good at. They're very good at stepping right forward and saying, you're going to kill my grandma. You're going to kill this orphan. Right. And Democrats, you know, interested in taking the high road, which on the one hand I appreciate, but on the other hand, ends up watering down those messages. And, you you know, you're not getting that that same kind of reactionary response that would otherwise, you know, come at you full force. I mean, I don't mean to be like too vulgar a Marxist right now, but sometimes I just can't stop the impulse. But I think the problem is often... I've often heard this this mentioned that the problem is like Democrats keep trying to compromise, whereas Republicans are willing to just ruthlessly say, no, damn it. But I think the thing is Democrats don't want what the base wants or what the people who are voting for them want, right? Like Democrats don't want universal health care. Like it was really clear from the get-go and especially all this stuff's coming out about how Rahm Emanuel and Obama, the first thing they said was like, okay, don't worry about that part. We just want to pass this, you know? And they don't want, and the problem is like, so Republicans get the advantage that they're openly saying like, we want to lock up the homeless, uh, cut all taxes to the wealthy and destroy the rest of the world. And you you say that, whereas Democrats say like, no, we want to be nice and friendly and kind of put some restraints on this stuff when they want to do the same thing. And so it's harder to make like a really strong message of like, you know, kill the bastards is a really easy message to make. But like kill some of them, but other ones contain indefinitely and don't kill some of them is like a harder message to rally around, you know? I don't know, because I think Republicans are just as I mean, when you look at what Republicans actually end up doing, there's as much compromise of their strong yeah. core values as anything yeah, Democrats absolutely. do. It's just they, they don't they don't actually feel like they need to talk about it that way. They still talk about it in those clear cut terms, you know. Right. When they when they govern, they're just as centrist and govern. I mean, like, you know, look at what, what did Bush do before in the first two years in office, right? Expansion of the prescription drug benefit for seniors and no child left behind. You know, not exactly yeah. small government. Uh, but and I mean, who knows if Rahm Emanuel and Obama wanted universal coverage? But I think Rahm Emanuel said we don't have the votes for that. You know, I mean, you know, look. Having said that, I think somebody like a Nancy Pelosi, uh, even and Obama, deserve a lot of credit. I mean, they they governed, they got a lot done. You know, and and it's not exactly what progressives wanted, but they got the insurance company to, to the insurance companies to sit at the table, and they gave them the mandate, but they got coverage for it's not a hundred percent, but almost a hundred percent. I mean, and then they, they got, you know, even with financial reform, they got the financial industry at the table. They, everybody, you know, they, the, the financial industry gave money to the other side, but they got financial reform out of Congress. And it's not everything. They didn't get energy. They didn't get, they didn't do don't ask, don't tell, but they governed. I mean, they, they use their political capital. So, I mean, Democrats should probably be at least comforted by that. Well, and that's but, the kind of stuff that I wish that would have come out more in you know, in the elections, that that there were all these accomplishments that ended up getting totally buried because people were trying to run away with their tails between their legs and beg for forgiveness and mercy, instead yeah. of saying, you know, there were actually some really great things done that that were major pieces of legislation that you know administrations past have talked about and tried for, and we actually got done. And instead, they were like, no, no, please, please reelect us. We'll do anything you want. You know, yeah. and it, all of that stuff really got buried, and I thought it was a shame. I think yeah, the uh, I think the well-meaning part of that yeah. is that they, you know, this sort of fear of having, like, okay, so say you're Obama, 
and you feel like you know you've done good things uh, to you know get the economy out of the trouble that it was in, but it's still bad, right? You don't want to come out and be talking about how great everything is. You know, you can't oversell. You don't want to have that yeah. mission accomplished moment uh, <laughs> with yeah. the economy. No, I, and I think, I totally I mean, I think they got so scared of that. You know, instead of I actually, totally agree, but I don't think that that means you say nothing. Yeah, I don't think that means you you shelve. You know, talking about the tax cuts until after the elections. I don't, you know, it seems like. Mm -hmm. In it, knowing in advance that they were going to suffer some losses and not wanting to construe themselves as victors, they just instead became victims and sort of presaged the whole thing, you know, months in advance, it's, it felt like to me. Well, but, you know, now that now they've got a body of accomplishments to run on in 2012 when, if the economy improves, right? I mean, at 9.6%, none of this stuff looks really good, but at 7, 6.5%. Uh, all this looks better, right? When, when, at that when it's point, a bit more salient. Won't they be having to compete with the new Republican Congress taking credit for all of that stuff that they were able to turn around oh, in yeah, the second true. two years of the administration? Nah, president gets, I think the president gets credit. for. I actually thought Congress. that was one of the more interesting things of the sort of aftermath right away because there's this big sort of Republican victory, but then uh, I can't remember who it was, probably the Daily Show or one of those that had a great collection of like, all of these newly elected Republicans, especially the leaders, saying like, you know, but of course there's still this Democratic Senate and Democratic right. President. Like we don't have, we don't. This was the greatest sweep election sweep in the history of mankind, but we don't have any power. You know, like it was such an interesting. Like they instantly started that backpedal. So, you know, it'd be fun to see. Yeah, that Jeff, Boehner, he, Boehner rewrote the Constitution on that one, right? And said the president said mm -hmm. the legislative agenda. It's like, eh, not exactly how that works yeah. <laughs> constitutionally, but. Yeah. yeah. Hey guys, I gotta I gotta run, so um Sweet. Alright. All right. Well, yeah, that was pretty good. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice meeting you. Nice meeting you as well. Yeah, thanks for being here. Alright. Talk to you later. Alright. Alright All right. guys. Alright. Always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. Um It's it's a funny when one person leaves the conversation because everyone waits until they're gone to keep talking again because you don't want them to think like yeah yeah oh, wait I haven't, I haven't left yet <laughs> oh god damn that's what I mean exactly <laughs> like, all right hey, I'll, I'll see you guys take care right? I'll see you later.